Welcome to the Green Majority. Stefan would like me to say that it is the uh, longest-running environmental news show in Canada. And we are broadcasting right now out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, the only independent station in Toronto on the FM dial. And uh, we're also available on many local community radio stations and on various podcast platforms. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we're your Green Majority hosts. And we have environmental news, some climate studies, and then we have a discussion about activism burnout. And then we have a write-up on comprehensive land claims in Canada. But first, Stefan is going to mention a couple things off the top here. It's true. So this week is seeing movement on two issues that we've covered on the show before. One of them is that the Canadian Climate Accountability Legislation has passed the House uh, and now sits with the Senate. And the second is that Britney Spears, hashtag free Britney, has a court appearance today as part of her ongoing fight to be freed of her conserva- conserva- conservatorship? Conservatorship. 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 Sorry. What ties these two together is that they are both happening decades later than they should have. These issues became intertwined in 1990, the year of both the first IPCC report and the revival of the Mickey Mouse Club, the stage as the stage was set for both climate and Britney to take the world by storm. Oh my goodness. Unfortunately for the world, the need to extract value out of both pop stars and the planet dominated the next 30 years, leaving us facing the world we see today. Where children who were born well after Backstreet was back... Oh my And... <laughs> And Brittany are in court fighting for their futures. But for more on both of these issues, our resident expert, Lauren Latour. That was wonderfully put, Stefan. And David, I hear your I hear your giggles. I see your face. But here's the thing. There's an entire branch of study called ecofeminism that speaks directly to these issues and the connections between the ongoing exploitation of the planet in addition to female autonomy and ownership of the self and the female body. And that is an exploitation that Britney Spears has been subjected to her entire life. So yes, these issues are connected. Do we have a ton of time to get into it today? We don't, but Stefan is right. So big, big things happen today. Like he said, well, today, meaning Wednesday when we record, Brittany was in court. It was a big deal because it was the first time she'd been able to address the court um, about her conservatorship and like come out point blank and say, I don't want this anymore. I would like this to be canceled. And, and it's sort of, it was her first opportunity to say that publicly because um, although she does have public facing social media, it's heavily managed and filtered by her, her handlers and her minders. So she hasn't actually had that open connection with with the outside world and an ability to advocate for herself. Um, so that was a really big deal. So that was a, that was a good positive move forward. And another positive move forward that happened in the last 24 hours, like Stefan said, is that Bill C-12, the accountability bill finally passed its third reading in the house. So that means the only sort of barrier between it being law um, and it not being law is it passing through the Senate by the end of this week, um, which we will, by the time you are listening to this, listeners, by the time this is hitting your ears and the airwaves, we will likely have a pretty solid idea of whether or not it's going to pass this Friday, because Friday is when 
the Senate rises for, for the summer recess. So, so the call right now is for Senate to remain sitting um, and not get up from their literal and metaphorical desks until the work is finished, um, until this bill passes on Friday, hopefully not too, too late into the evening. So, so that's where we're at with that right now. Still progress to be made on both of these vitally important issues, um, but, but good steps today. See, sometimes we start with some good news, and uh, but now we dive into the the studies of science, which unfortunately much more dark. Yes, well, I'm well, I'm not amused by the connection of the two issues that Stefan made. I'm amused by the giddy prance of his wordplay. <laughs> I'm a giddy man. I know. The sky's falling, the wind is calling, stand for something or die in the morning. All right, so now for some news headlines. A joint NASA and NOAA study has found that Earth's energy imbalance doubled from 2005 to 2019. It's this energy imbalance that's causing the globe to heat up. Two independent measuring systems corroborated the findings, lending a lot of scientific credence to the study. Our civilization's greenhouse gas emissions are partly responsible for the unprecedented magnitude of the energy increase, but there are also natural variabilities such as the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is a, quote, naturally occurring internal variability in the Earth's system that can have far-reaching effects on weather and climate. An intensely warm Pacific Decadal Oscillation phase that began around 2014 and continued until 2020 caused a widespread reduction in cloud coverage over the ocean and a corresponding increase in the absorption of solar radiation. NASA researchers write, quote, The study is only a snapshot relative to long-term climate change, and it's not possible to predict with any certainty what the coming decades might look like for the balance of Earth's energy budget. The study does conclude, however, that unless the rate of heat uptake subsides, greater changes in climate than are already occurring should be expected. Those greater climactic changes will soon be starkly addressed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whose next landmark report, was leaked in draft form to Agence France-Presse last week. The IPCC draft report underscores in harsh terms the climate tipping points past whose thresholds we may not be able to recover, reading, quote, Life on Earth can recover from a drastic climate shift by evolving into new species and creating new ecosystems. Humans cannot. One of the reasons we have moved away from the 2 degrees Celsius goal of the Paris Agreement to a 1.5 degrees Celsius goal is that we do not know at what warming point we may trigger an irreversible series of climate dominoes, or even how these potential tipping points may interact with one another. The Guardian quotes Bob Woodward of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics as saying, quote, Scientists have identified several potential regional and global thresholds or tipping points in the climate beyond which impacts become unstoppable or irreversible or accelerate. They could create huge social and economic responses, such as population displacements and conflict, and so represent the largest potential risks of climate change. Tipping points 
should be the climate change impacts about which policymakers worry the most, but they are often left out of assessments by scientists and economists because they are difficult to quantify. And moving on to an update about Ferry Creek, the BC provincial government has announced a two-year deferral on logging in the Ferry Creek watershed and central Walbran areas of Vancouver Island, which contain some of BC's last old-growth forest. The announcement comes after three First Nations, the Pachida, Ditida, and Huaya, called on the government to do so in a formal declaration. The Huaya Nation had already decided to defer logging in its treaty territories. Teal Jones, the logging company operating in the area, released a statement saying it would honor the declaration. 180 protesters have been arrested so far in the Ferry Creek protests, and the RCMP is, has not stated whether they'll continue to arrest them. There are sections of Ferry Creek that are still under threat from logging, which are not included in the deferrals, so protesters will probably keep occupying those areas. Sarah Cox, writing for the Narwhal, interviewed forester Gary Merkel in May, who, along with Al Gorley, recently, read a, recently led a strategic review panel calling for a paradigm shift in BC's forestry industry. When asked if there is anything that could have been done to avoid this conflict, Merkel said, quote, This might sound a bit fatalist, but I'm not sure that there is. Our paradigm in British Columbia is that we see the forest as a huge bank of unending resources, particularly timber. That's its value. It's a mental thing because we built British Columbia on the backs of the timber industry. This is our culture in British Columbia. It's where we come from. It's who we are. He also said, quote, We're in a world now where people are afraid. They see the effects of climate change. They see the effects of large-scale pollution. You can see now at a global level what we are causing and it's going to hurt us. Lots, as a, as a species and hurt other things, too. There is very little accessible, iconic old growth. Couple that with the entrenched paradigm, you almost have to have conflict to get through it and push and shove. A uh, quick thought uh, on the upcoming IPCC report, and specifically the many true but also complicated reactions uh, that one can have to the data. And the first is, you know, this isn't new. The IPCC doesn't create new information, but rather synthesizes what we, what previous reports have already shown. But there's definitely value in seeing it all at once, and the reality is scary. And I think we need to create some space in our hearts for that fear, which I think we'll do a little bit in our second segment. And the second is that despite what John Kerry or the, or the more technocratic climate folks might want you to believe, we have plenty of answers. Kerry's quote from a few weeks back that 50% of what we need to decarbonize hasn't been invented yet has found its way into many an argument as to why the investment in green tech is the solution. And I'm not here to say that no new innovation is needed, but there is so, so much more that can be done right now, that can be done right now. And there are so many solutions that are antithetical to this tech-heavy mindset. We do not need new technology to stop car-centric cities. We do not need new technology to embrace passive house architecture. We do not need new technology to end the cult of fast consumption in all of its forms. 
We just need to accept that the colonial extractive way of life that has become so normal to us that it looks like water to a fish is drowning us. And finally, a quick shout out to the IPCC for learning from their Mickey Mouse Club days when they would consistently undersell the dangers to, con to, to ensure complete agreement. The more recent reports have moved the needle specifically because that they have learned to focus on the more human impacts and to be more honest with their fears. And I hope the world will listen. There's, there's a couple of conversations that, that keep coming up in climate spaces kind of around this. False solutions is a term that's been thrown around for a really long time, and it's something that people have been aware of. But two particular, arguably false solutions that have been getting a ton of airtime lately, um, and albeit we've been giving some of them, we've been giving some of that airtime here, is, is like blue hydrogen, um, which is essentially fossil gas-based hydrogen that is offset, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and SMRs, uh, which are a, a small modular nuclear re reactors. And those are two sort of like arguably false solutions that are getting a lot of time, a lot of attention, and potentially could be getting a lot of money going forward. Um, and the concern is there that that in this period of time where based on this IPCC report and past IPCC reports, we know that we don't have time to invest money and resources in um, the solutions that aren't going to get us to true zero as soon as physically possible. Um, that investment is, is a dangerous game to be playing here. Um, another report that came out recently, not from a, not from a body as big as the IPCC, but, but from uh, CCPA, the um, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, is called, uh, they've called it dangerous distractions uh, when one of the subtitles is net zero is not zero. And basically what that's exploring is that concept of investing too much money and too much time and too many resources in these kind of false solutions, in offsets, in in CCUS in the hope that that's going to pay off and that's going to that's going to um, draw us down enough when, when we know it's not going to. So um, what this IPCC report is telling us is that we don't have a lot of time. We're running out of it, but there's, like you said, Stefan, we still do have those solutions. We, we just need to actually invest in the right solutions. To, to briefly talk about uh, one little bit of news from C the CCS world, the carbon capture and storage world, is that one of the largest carbon capture and storage plants, which is in New Mexico, which costs $1.5 billion, and they're trying to basically make quote-unquote clean coal by capturing the carbon from a coal plant, is now 18 months behind schedule and still is, is, is trying to pretend that they are, that they are an answer. Meanwhile, there, there's been sh studies that have shown right now that in, I believe it's Germany, India, and China, new solar is now cheaper than keeping coal plants alive. So literally building all the work you have to do to build new solar is now cheaper than the ability to keep any coal plants alive, just keeping them alive at all. And when you look at the percentages and the percentages of the amount of, 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 of carbon that can, be, that can be tackled in these ways that exist, you know, we have, so there are so many solutions out there that we, I worry that this idea that you know, fifty percent is not if that the, the idea that fifty percent is not invented yet is a way to allow ourselves to think that more action is not needed now, and we have all these solutions that we're just ignoring or not investing enough for you know instead of and instead we're trying to find the silver bullet like carbon capture and storage or small modular reactors. Absolutely, and I mean if if that information about 
or if, 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 um, if those lower solar prices, then, then keeping coal on the line are like, is coming out of Germany. Like Germany is a huge coal producing co- country. They they've relied on it for, for decades and decades and decades. But if, if they're seeing that that shift is not only economically viable, but like encouraging and a positive shift to be making, like, come on, why are the rest of us dragging our feet? And the last thing I'll just note on this, on the 50% thing, because I, I don't want to believe that point too much, but I think it's important to note is that this idea that this 50% doesn't available presumes that we want to continue living our lives exactly as we are now, right? Like it presumes that we need as much steel produced as we do now. It presumes that we need all of these other things that, that are very carbon intensive as we do right now. And that isn't the case. Like we know we are over consuming in so many areas. We know that we have enough food to feed everyone and we're just creating famines through economic means. You know, it, there, we can't separate those two facts. Like redu- reduced consumption is an answer and it's not an answer the market likes because that means less money and, and that scares people, but it is a real and important and necessary part of actually decarbonizing. Absolutely. So the future we want is a future where our streets are not dominated by cars, but are instead populated by people and active transportation, and also a future in which um, our most beloved pop stars have, have financial and bodily autonomy. And now we're going to take a short break and return with a discussion about activist burnout. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're at the discussion part of our show. And for this one, we're taking a look at, we're taking a look inside the brain of, of climate activism uh, or climate activists, or at least the few that are on this call, or call, that are at least the few of us who are here. And specifically, I'm going to do a quick read through of a one minute piece that I wrote on Medium a couple week, a couple months ago. And then I want to get into a question for, for you, Lauren and Dave. I have found new small stories to torture myself with. It's a weird habit I have, though not so weird if you believe the internet. Still, it's odd to see yourself perpetuating a culture that you know is killing us. Speed. But it's addictive, No. The urge to do more, be more, prove yourself, to whom? An insatiable need that sits right beside the core of my being, gobbling up achievement after achievement despite never really doing anything. Perhaps that is why it feels insatiable, because I simply have nothing to feed it. I can never tell if I really believe these things.
but for moments I do. The speed though, the speed gets me because I don't want to stop. I like this. I just wonder if it's wrong. You can't hustle out of the climate crisis, but maybe you can still. What do you mean by hustling? You know, trying to do as much as possible, trying to accomplish as much as possible. You know, like the concept of a side hustle a little bit. Not personally, but in terms of environmental activism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that piece is a little bit more about also about the sort of drive that we all have or that I have from growing up when I did. That's like, you know, that you have to keep achieving as a part of to prove your worth. Um, but I want to get to the, the paradox for a second, because I think it to me, it's the thing that I really struggle with. And it's actually referenced in an earlier show we did actually with um, uh, with Torrance Cost of the uh, National Wilderness Committee about, uh, about the old growth forests, which Lauren did. Um, and the paradox is this, that we have less than a decade to rapidly decarbonize. That is a truth that we know. And we also have a truth that we know that change moves at the speed of trust. And I think that this leads to a bunch of conflicts in our brain where I think all sides are being true statements, which is that, and I'll, here's four of them just to throw out there, uh, that systemic problems require systemic thinking versus all of the immediate suffering that's happening right now. The second is that to solve the climate crisis, we will need new technology versus the fact that technology will not save us and that technocratic thinking is what got us into this problem in the first place. The third is that we do not have time in the next eight years to radically transform capitalism versus a radical transformation of capitalism is probably the only actual answer to solving the climate crisis. And in the last one that I think is connected to these pieces is that the feeling of need to be informed about everything, which is something that I think really exists right now, especially with activist movements, versus the knowledge, the knowledge that to try to take on everything leads to a sort of savior complex that got us into this mess in the first place. And I think it's these tensions that lead us to these questions of like these are the questions that I cannot get over. So maybe this is just a therapy session for me, but what are your thoughts? No, I think, I think that's a really good, I don't think this is just a therapy session for you. I think this is a conversation that, that comes up all the time and is a good one to have on the show. I think it gets to it, or it, it leads me to, um, this sort of notion that that I've heard come up time and time again. I, I recently had the pleasure of listening to, um, uh, an academic by the name of um, Hari Khan. She's a professor and a doctor out of the States who's recently co-written a book with um, a few other academics, sort of taking like a really like research intensive look at um, the efficacy or like effective effectiveness of um, various uh, activist and political campaigns. And what she was saying, and she kind of just threw it off, mentioned it in passing, but the idea that like as um, activism and organizing increasingly becomes a profession, um, the rate of change is slowing down a little bit. And it's one of those things where it's like, you can't necessarily accredit it to that, but it's it's the idea that like, 
yeah, uh, once it's, once it becomes somebody's nine to five job, it becomes somebody's nine to five job. And even though like, yes, I work nine to five as, um, as like somebody in the climate movement. And then I do this. And then I also do other climate organizing on the side. There is some, there's an element of fatigue there. I'm not maybe like, um, I'm, I'm potentially having more of a net positive effect because I'm spending 40 hours a week working on climate organizing. But it also means that like, there is potentially a lack of, or I, I'm not doing it with quite the same ferocity as I was when it was like the thing I did um, for pleasure outside of like class hours or outside of work hours. And it's, it sort of, to me, there's this issue and I, and, and I keep seeing it come up in, in climate spaces, especially as climate spaces are increasingly being um, rightfully infiltrated by um, like uh, the labor movement. And, and we're increasingly seeing the sort of like melding of those two worlds as, as our movements become more intersectional and more focused on justice and equity in general. It's this idea that like, well, if I'm trying to model the world I want to see, then that means I need to not work overtime. It means I need to not pick up my phone after the hour of 6 p.m. It means that like a workplace might be moving from five days a week to four days a week. Um, so, so there are these things that are happening and, and we're trying to, um, as members of a larger sort of like progressive leftist movement, push back on the sort of like puritanical uh, Judeo-Christian idea that like your worth is determined by your work hours and your professional contribution or your, yeah, your professional or, or even, um, uh, oh, what's that word I'm looking for? It also starts with a P. Anyway, your contribution to society via your work, whether that necessarily be paid or unpaid. But anyway, if you're trying to push back against that, you're trying to maybe reduce your work hours or, or at least your overtime hours, well, at the same time, acknowledging that the work that we're doing is like really, <laughs> this sounds self-aggrandizing, but is like important and requires speed and requires urgency and requires a lot of effort being put in all the time and requires you to be thinking about it all the time. And it's like, how do you marry those two things? How do you, how do you operate in a workspace um, in a way that is like equitable and just and um, uh putting people, putting, putting people's well-being first in the sense that like you're putting your own mental health or your colleagues' mental health first while acknowledging the fact that it's like the world is melting down and we need to all be acting all the time to save it. Um, yeah. I yeah. I, of course, no solutions were presented there. <laughs> For me, the question um, breaks into two specific uh, angles. Uh, the one being how to uh, like how to take care of your own psychology while performing uh, this this kind of work and working towards these kind of solutions. And the other is what kinds of actions are actually matter the most and which are the most efficacious. And the, fir the first is like, I think everybody has an authentic feeling of what actually nourishes them and what fatigues them outside of this kind of work. So if you're doing a whole bunch of environmental activist work and then there's other stuff that you're doing outside of it just for recreation or for whatever like outside of outside of the important work that you're doing there are things that nourish you or further fatigue you so but so i think there's a way to simply uh like isolate which 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 quote unquote non-activist activities uh are are actually allowing you to to grow and recharge beyond 
uh, what's what's occurring, for instance, or beyond your your activism. Um, like, I think people get asked this question a lot. For instance, uh, uh, Chris Hedges once said that uh, he turns to poetry. For instance, it's like people are like, how? Because he's one of these like really intense like dudes, right? He thinks like it's all going to hell, and we need to do and all this different stuff. And so people ask him like, "How do you like what? How do you maintain your 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 mental balance while while doing all this?" And he's like, "Well, I, I turn to poetry, and it sustains me." So I think there are things that we can turn to that we know that will authentically nourish us um, outside of that that seem to have no connection to the to the work, but uh, do because they sustain us separate from that. And but then there's um, the 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 question of what work actually matters, and I do like the idea that most actions with intent towards healing and so forth will matter in some sense. But then you have certain provocations, like for instance, there's uh, Ralph Nader, you know, the king of provocations. Uh, I heard him talking about, this is not specifically related related to the environment, but it's about uh, left-wing progressive activism in general. And he was like, there are so many uh, talk, left-wing talk shows uh, in the United States um, about how corporate control is terrible and needs to be dismantled, and it's all all this discussion about the 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 hold of of corporations upon decision making, et cetera, and and people's lives. And he quoted somebody else. I don't remember who it was. And he goes, "To know but not to do is not to know." And so he's implying that if we if we talk about how corporations uh, are screwing everything up, but are not wholeheartedly going after the mo- in the most practical, like sharp-edged ways to dismantle that system. Then we're actually not. Then we actually don't nec- know what we're talking about if we're not doing that. Um, yeah. I had a third thing, but if you want to talk about it, uh, it does make sense to say that like individual action is not enough, etc. And that a systems-wide change is necessary. However, in order to achieve the system-wide change, people have to consent to that change. And so, like individuals changing their mindset and personal behavior is still a necessary component of uh, a structural change. Because if you try to make a structural change with unwilling people who want the old system to stay, it's going to seem like tyranny and blasphemy and confusion and despotism. Uh, and so there is, and so there is like a certain a certain um, spiritual shift I think required in terms of people's in terms of our uh, species level thinking about what what we're doing on this planet, right? Like what it is that we're that we're actually alive for, et cetera. And th- and that informs the way that we live every day. And so and so structural change without like without changing the way that that people actually think about where they are and who they are uh, seems to me like. Uh, sort of a, a dangerous route like a like a like a like a, a revolution without unwilling with unwilling participants i was just gonna say like won't be a successful revolution because again going back to like research that people have done looking at the success of a given of a given um movement or campaign or revolution it's like revolution doesn't happen because um thinkers think it should, right? Like it's because people are like, no, this is what needs to happen in order to like enact systemic change. We have to, we have to have this revolution. It's like, that only happens when people are primed for it. It's like quite literally people have to be ready and wanting it to happen. So, so you are right, 
to a degree, David, it's like, it's, if people don't want those things and people aren't stepping up to make those changes and accept those differences, then the different, then, then those changes will never occur because there simply isn't the groundswell of pressure for, for those shifts. Yeah. And I, and I think both of you actually are getting at where I was going with the original piece about hustle, really. Although as a quick aside, I will say, I am not going to listen to Ralph Nader about Praxis given that Ralph Nader... Oh, here we go. Here we go. Ralph Nader brought George Bush into power and caused the decline of the West. I mean, I just, he brought George into power and we could have had someone planning for climate change in 2001 instead of now. That's all I'm saying. But no, but the the more important conversation here is what we were trying to talk about. And because both of you identified, I think, this exact question in slightly different ways. Um, You know, Lauren, when you're talking about how we have to embody the world we need, you know, uh, and and that uh, requires that sort of as these as you know as the environmental movement and labor movement come together, that's exactly this piece about hustle that I was struggling with, right? Like it's this exact piece of I know I have to slow down. I know the only way we exist as a functioning world with the reductions required of emissions is to do less. Like the speed at which we uh, we occupy our lives is what is driving the the churn of emissions. And the only way to maintain our feelings of well-being and um, and while also reducing emissions will be to slow that down. You know, it will be to work less. It will be to engage in carbon-free things with hanging out with people and relaxing and being just people with each other like that kind of life will have to be brought up and it can't be filled with the number of things that we currently like my drive to make sure that I'm doing as much as I possibly can I think is exactly the problem and yet I have such a hard time separating it because of the fact that we only have like eight years and because I grew up in a Judeo-Christian household that really encouraged not I wouldn't say not even I actually, it was like, I, like I don't want to put on my. I don't want to put this on my parents because it's not. It's the it's society's expectations of accomplishments, right? Like the thirty under 30, 40 under forty. You know, like this constant push. And I think it's that, and then tied to you, Dave, and your point about how people will not move with unless they are seeing a different world. Those two things are the same thing, right? Like if the climate movement and the movement for change can't find a way to replicate a happy life that's different from the hustle and grind that of corporate structure it's we are not going to be we will not we don't we will will not succeed at being the um example we want to be right like god it feels hard to rationalize that to rationalize that slowing down that dropping out when you realize that like the quote-unquote other side isn't doing that. They are, they are, they are hustling. And not only do they sort of like give into that hustle to a degree, they, they relish it. They meaning like that, those, those societal principles, like they relish, it, it relishes the hustle. Um, it, and, and again, I understand that like, yep. But if you slow down and people see that your life is better and that your life is more enjoyable then like, it'll convert people, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, but that conversion takes a real long time. Hustle doesn't take as long. Because yeah, no, it's fast by the nature of it. Exactly, right? And this is this is exactly the thing. This is ex- like 
which, you know, we're, we're just basically just being like, we don't have any answers. Sorry, listeners. But if, but I'd be honest to be interested if anyone does have, like, I'd be interested in how listeners navigate this tension in their own lives. A, do you feel these tensions? And B, how do you navigate them? Write into us, tweet at us, because I would love to hear answers to this question, because it's clearly something that all three of us are working on. And I think and it's becoming increasingly important to figure out because if we, because we are increasingly fighting, you know, the need to hustle is increasing because we're running out of time, but also the need to embody and show a different world as possible is also just as important in increasing at just the same rate. So basically what we're trying to say is you're potentially listening to this on a Friday afternoon. So what I think that means is you need to play hooky from work for the rest of the day and go like lay in a field and chat with your friends. And that's the best thing you can do for the climate crisis. Is it though? Oh God. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Like, even as I say it, I'm like being torn in two. Well, the problem is this relaxing away from the hustle, right? Can also mean you're flying to Cancun and relaxing on a beach and, and, uh, causing all of these carbon emissions and perpetuating the system. Yeah, well, and, and like at what point is is relaxation just complicity? You know, like it. at, at what point is you is you tuning out and dropping away just being like, yeah, sure. Like being viewed externally as you saying, yeah, sure, do whatever, I don't care. When it's, and- it's not, it's righteous relaxation. Yeah. Well, and then there's, yeah, then there's privilege that obviously it's later on top of this, you know, like I was recently, I recently was talking to, to a friend of mine and, and ended up saying the sentence that pleasure activism is different when you're a white dude, because like, there's so much more ex- like, like, like that. I cannot spend my entire life just being like, yeah, I'm just going to go live in like, like a forest and just love my life. Cause that is, it's opting out of the fight for the future. Right. And well, there's 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 relaxation that is uh, based on consumption and there's relaxation that is based on reflection and wisdom and uh, learning, et cetera. So I think there there are two very different types of relaxation and there are two very, very different types of hustling as well. There's hustling for personal gain and there's hustling for uh, each other. For sure. I, I think to me, the question that I'm trying to entangle is that. I still feel like the relaxation for learning and the hustling for good are still intertwined with these, with the hustling for personal gain and the relaxation that is, uh, I want like, like obviously consumptive relaxation is, is a bit different, but like from the standpoint of just like, even just like this question of opting out. Well, that, that's a very uh, like, tangled and complex thing within the individual who thinks you know it's very it, it is very easy especially within the the motive structures of the society we live in to think oh i'm going to be an activist and that's going to bring me glory i'm going to be uh, a, a great environmentalist and that is going to bring me personal like people are going to love me and i'm going to feel good about myself and i'm going to get good things because of that right and then and then that itself taints the thing and then just becomes another another one of the processes that supports what's already occurring. I would love to know if I'm almost like I'm putting the call out and maybe we need to put the call out beyond our listenership, but it's like, are there quote unquote activists out there who have never experienced burnout? 
right? Like, is there a way of doing it that is so like purely aligned with your heart and your intentions and your community that activism is always a source of joy and never a source of fatigue? Um, and, and in that way, always like a communal and personal net good. And, and does that exist? And, and are we just conceptualizing the hustle of activism in, in, in this way, in this paradigm within the sort of like, again, that Judeo-Christian mindset of, of always measuring worth based on productivity, but like, is there another way? Are there, yeah. Are there other ways of conceptualizing and embodying that work that aren't as draining? I think that's as good a question uh, to leave folks with as we're going to find. So folks, send us your thoughts. This is a clearly an ongoing conversation and I would love to be able to actually, you know what, I'm going to be, if we get an, if we get enough of a response from this, uh, send it to your thoughts. And I would love to, to come back to this question with some listeners opinions about it um, or other people's thoughts. So if you have any thoughts on this, please let us know because really need to hear them. Now we're going to go for a short break and return with a piece about comprehensive land claims in Canada. Your being uh, alone uh, is important and the hairs of validity beyond any philosophy. So now I'm going to read a piece that our contributor Christopher Moray wrote about comprehensive land claims in Canada. These are between indigenous groups and the Canadian government. And just as I read this, keep in mind the 215 indigenous children, the, their bodies being found in Kamloops, BC, is not just something that we can mourn and then move on from as if that's the one thing that happened here. I saw a TikTok video of a of an indigenous woman. She didn't say where she was from or, or anything, but she said her mother in Canada attended one of these residential schools in which children were kidnapped into. Uh, and she said the dead children at that school they did not bury the bodies, they burned them. So even if we find other, we will find other bodies, but even the other bodies that we find is still a tiny part of what has actually happened here that we need to integrate into how we think about this land and this country. And so now I'll read Chris's piece on comprehensive land claims. So 50 years ago, the NISCA brought the first comprehensive land claim, or CLC, to the federal government. Since then, 22 CLC agreements have been reached. The express purpose of a CLC agreement is to resolve issues of indigenous title in order to make way for economic development namely the extraction of natural resources from indigenous land. This is achieved by negotiating the extinguishment of indigenous title to, to traditional territory 
in exchange for smaller parcels of land, semi-autonomous governing structures, and a share of the profits from extractive projects. Despite the fact that CLC agreements usually result in a significant loss of traditional territory, the process continues to be the preferred method of settling land claims. As Christopher Alcantara points out in To Treaty or Not to Treaty, a comprehensive land claim is essentially a modern treaty. Its purpose is simple, to reach an agreement of legal land ownership and limited jurisdictional independence with indigenous groups that have never signed a treaty with the Crown. In contrast to the specific land claims process, which is meant to resolve disputes by indigenous groups that already hold historical treaties with the Crown, the CLC process restarts the treaty negotiations that were halted in 1921 in favor of a variety of assimilation techniques. Growing backlash to the assimilation policies of the 20th century came to a head after Pierre Trudeau released the 1969 White Paper, which pushed for greater indigenous integration into the mainstream. But it wasn't until the Calder ruling in 1973 that the government agreed to recognize indigenous title and return to a policy of treaty negotiation. The framework for comprehensive land claim negotiations is relatively straightforward. Each indigenous group submits a statement of intent to prove three things. That their title has never been extinguished, that their group historically occupied and used its claimed lands to the exclusion of other groups, and that it is an identifiable and recognizable indigenous group. After indigenous title is established, negotiations on the full range of issues covered in a CLC begins. These issues include establishment of government structures, constitutions and leadership selection processes, social services, enforcement of indigenous laws, land and wildlife management, and many others. The resulting framework agreement is then used as the basis for negotiating an agreement in principle. While not legally binding, the agreement in principle is meant to take the negotiations as close as possible to the final agreement. It is the most time-consuming part of the whole process, which can drag on for years, especially if the indigenous group and the federal government's interests are far apart. The last stage of the process, the final agreement, becomes a constitutional document that exhaustively details the land, jurisdiction, and governmental structures of the indigenous group. This final agreement is intended to solve the question of ownership of indigenous land. The essential criticism of the comprehensive land claims process is that clearing the land of indigenous peoples for economic development is a form of dispossession. Academics Peter Kolchiski and Warren Bernauer, for instance, regard the mandatory inclusion of an extinguishment clause, which, quote, stipulates surrender of Aboriginal title to its traditional territory, as causing dispossession. The policy forces groups to forfeit vast quantities of land in return for legal recognition by the government for the express purpose of making money from resource extraction. Dispossession, justified by privileging potential economic gains over the rights of indigenous groups, is a continuation of the process of colonization and displacement that has characterized European settlement in Canada. 
Hence, in comparison with earlier policies, the comprehensive land claim process constitutes more of the same. Alcantara, for instance, suggests that the completion of the Inuit final agreement happened much more quickly because of the discovery of large nickel deposits in Voise Bay. Ken Coates suggests that the BC government made the Niska agreement a top priority because of concerns from the lumber and fishing industries that their profits were going to be disrupted. Additionally, in many agreements, indigenous groups are given limited control over development projects. Project approval often requires that indigenous groups are merely consulted, or that negotiations take place in which indigenous representatives, members of the provincial government, and interested developers sit equally. Limited and largely symbolic indigenous control over development projects within the framework of a CLC agreement is negotiated not only because the federal and provincial government's primary concern is for economic development, but because they see indigenous rights as a hindrance to profit. Another criticism of the comprehensive land claims process is that it reinforces the paternalistic attitude toward indigenous groups that acts as an implicit justification for continued colonization. While indigenous groups inherently view themselves as equal to the federal government, as a nation to another nation, the federal government views indigenous groups as ethnic minorities within the Canadian state. The refusal by the Canadian government to see indigenous groups as sovereign entities who lived on this land thousands of years before European settlement is not new. It's a viewpoint that leads directly to a negotiation process in which indigenous groups are forced to sign away the majority of their traditional territory out of fairness to Canadians, particularly those Canadians with an interest in industrial development. Colonial paternalism can be further seen in the governance institutions created through the CLC process, namely the land claims boards. These boards are meant to manage the land and capital of the indigenous territory dealt with in the CLC agreement. They're composed of both indigenous and non-indigenous members and are structured like corporations. They have an objective interest in profit, and a legal mandate to integrate the territory into the greater global economy. Their focus on the implementation of a mixed economy, where traditional hunting and fishing is meant to coexist with resource extraction projects integrated into the global capitalist system, often runs at cross-purposes. Furthermore, by incentivizing profit-making, the land claims boards give rise to a petty capitalist management class within the indigenous group, which can undermine the communities they're supposed to be empowering. The comprehensive land claims process also follows what Tracy Lee Scott calls a frozen nights approach. That is to say, the process works on a static, historical understanding of indigenous rights, which fails to enable the possibility of modern Aboriginal survival. For example, Graham White writes that the wildlife provisions in most land claims agreements are, quote, infused with the biases, concepts, and procedures of Western science and the conservation bureaucracy, and he questions whether traditional knowledge is integrated fairly into the procedures. White states that in the case of the Nunavut Wildlife Management Board, auditing and accountability requirements are, quote, partially transforming traditional groupings 
into bureaucratically constrained institutions. Assumptions that indigenous perspectives are outdated or unscientific lead to the marginalization of traditional knowledge within the very organizations meant to protect indigenous rights and ways of living. Any legitimate solution to land rights must strengthen indigenous sovereignty. The most straightforward way to do this is through a self-government agreement, which can be either included or made separately from a comprehensive land claims agreement. While much more limited in the issues it addresses, greater control can allow groups to benefit more from economic development of the land. And self-government agreements, because they do not deal specifically with land ownership, do not extinguish title. Some indigenous groups, like the Niska, have written self-government provisions directly into their comprehensive land claim final agreements. The Niska final agreement is notable for a number of reasons. First, it puts significant jurisdictional control over the territories included in the agreement under the control of the Niska. This includes the distribution of permits to exploit the resources on their land, like timber and fish. Control over resource management allows the Niska to profit from development projects while setting stricter environmental standards than the province currently mandates. This allows for the Niska to coordinate their economy while protecting their community. Another alternative is for indigenous groups to enter into bilateral agreements with third parties. These agreements would include profit-sharing and land management deals with private companies interested in development on indigenous territory. This is simpler than the comprehensive land claims process and is encouraged by the Canadian government. From the government's perspective, the CLC process is primarily meant to promote economic development. Bilateral agreements do just that and also cost a lot less money. The direct inclusion of the indigenous group in the project can lead to strict environmental standards. In return, the financial gains can help the group increase their independence from the government. One other alternative is to utilize the Land Management Act of 1999, which allows an indigenous group to institute its own set of land management codes. As with the other options, it is limited in the scope of the control it can grant. It cannot substitute for a CLC agreement but it can help build the capacity necessary to sustain further negotiations and greater independence from the Canadian government. It avoids the imposition of corporate structures like a land claims board, or at least puts those structures directly in the control of the indigenous group. To conclude, the comprehensive land claims process, when it results in a final agreement, succeeds in creating finality and certainty over land ownership. Consequently, in the eyes of Canadian governments and resource development industries, the process is effective. But any benefit for Indigenous groups must be weighed against dispossession and exclusion. Most groups lose a significant amount of their traditional territory, and their land is put under the control of land claims boards that are not structured to represent the interests of those who practice their traditional way of life. The process reinforces the same paternalistic attitude that caused the atrocities of colonialism and continues to value economic interests and the interests of the European settler population ahead of any consideration for the rights of indigenous peoples. 
While there are alternatives to the comprehensive land claims process, they all involve greater integration into the global capitalist market. Considering that in its absence, further dispossession is inevitable, it would seem, the comprehensive land claims process remains the best option in that it can provide wide-ranging and constitutional protection. Despite the drawbacks of the process, indigenous groups continue to fight for self-government and the recognition of their inalienable sovereignty. They continue to resist the legal extinguishment of indigenous title. However, if the cycle of dispossession and exclusion is to end, and meaningful indigenous sovereignty is to be achieved, the comprehensive land claims process must be recognized as what it is, a continuation of the historical process of appropriating indigenous territory for private profit. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy being green.